The uh, session on uh, new weapons and remote warfare. I'm Fiona Godley, editor of the BMJ, um, and this is a session which already had a bit of a trailer um, in Paul Rogers' talk earlier, uh, which I found a rather chilling comment about the move from direct to remote warfare. And I think we're going to learn a lot in the next hour and a half, I think, or just under, um, about all of this. So uh, we've got four very well-informed um, and marvellous speakers for you today. They're going to speak in series, 10 minutes each, and then we'll have time for questions. So please, if you could store up your questions at the end of the, after each person has spoken, and we'll hopefully have as an interactive as possible a session towards the end. Uh, so we're going to have, uh, Paul Rogers is going to start, followed by Caroline Donnellan. The um, affiliations are in the programme, followed by Richard Reeve, and finally Andrew Noakes. So without more ado, I'm going to hand over to Paul Rogers. Fine. Thanks very much. Um, a little bit of background here. We're mainly concerned with a project which is underway. It's the Remote Control Project. It's funded by the Network for Social Change, that some of you may know about. If not, there's a very good website. And it's hosted by Oxford Research Group, but it's an independent thing. And it's looking at this transition to remote warfare. If you want to know more about the program itself, Graham Prescott is one of the people heavily involved who will also tell you about it, and of course Caroline as well, who is the project manager. The background to it really is a recognition just a few years ago that as the whole concept of boots on the ground was beginning to fail, um, there was a move to look at other ways of maintaining control. This coincided with the development of some new technologies, most particularly drones which could be armed and flown effectively from many, many thousands of miles away. So it wasn't just a combination of sort of remote aircraft, uh, pilotless aircraft. It was the fact that the modern systems of communication and also of observation meant that in more or less real time, you could have somebody at a console, say at Creech Air Force Base outside Las Vegas, actually controlling a powerful armed drone with at least the weapons of a strike aircraft, which might be flying over the Middle East. And that technology is really developing in the early, very early 2000s. has a long history, uh, but that's when it really came to fruition. <coughs> Only two countries were seriously into the technologies originally, the United States and, of course, Israel, both of which have been pretty big um, exporters of these, these things. But in a sense, it was the drones that caught people's attention, and still does, and, and groups like Drone Wars UK with Chris Cole have done some very effective campaigning and some of them are in out of jail at the present time. But it's actually part of a wider thing. And uh, we find in the Remote Control Project that issues like the much wider use of special forces, uh, the much wider use of privatised military companies in place of large numbers of uniformed groups on the, uh, boots on the ground. The change in special forces is quite startling. I mean, the US Special Operations Command, which coordinates the special forces of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the uh, Marine Corps, um, that uh, about uh, five years ago had a total number of people allocated to it of about 44,000. Uh, and the British Army at the time was about 110,000 in total. The British Army is going down to about 90,000. US SOCOM is going up to 72,000. So in other words, the US Special Forces alone will be almost as big as the entire British Army. And they tend to be the groups of, 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 of choice. 
and most of this is being done in very high degrees of secrecy. I'll give you one specific example. There was a parliamentary question asked recently about whether British forces were operating on the ground in Syria, which of course this hadn't been approved by Parliament. I think it was Caroline Lucas who actually asked it. And uh, the answer came back, no sorry, it's Clive Lewis, the, the new MP for, the, for Norris South. And the answer came back, um, as we've told Parliament, there are no British forces operating in Syria. Clive then put in a second question, uh, does that include special forces? And back came reply, it is the custom of successive governments not to comment on the use of special forces. In other words, they wouldn't even say. We know from other press reports that they are involved. And then you have the privatised military companies as well. So essentially, it's an overall move to try and maintain control of uh, what are very difficult challenges uh, by different means. And it is highly unlikely we will see very large numbers of American, British, French or German troops operating overseas unless something quite extraordinary happens. Uh, all the indications are that this new form of control uh, is not working. I mean, an absolute classic example, of course, is what has happened in Libya. When there were hardly any ground troops used, it was used all air power, and the extraordinary mess we now have gives you some indication if you're trying to do it remotely, that's the kind of thing you end up with. I don't want to cut across what Caroline and Richard and, and uh, Andrew will say because they have a much more of the detail. But the overall picture, this is a trend. The indications are that it's raising many new problems. It is not a panacea. But the problem is that apart from the issue of drones, there are very, very few people working on it. There's only one or two academics in the entire British university system who are doing serious work on special forces. John Moran at Leicester, in fact, is one of the very few, and I believe has just got a contract for a full-scale book on it. There's an awful lot of rubbish stuff done about special forces, you know, the Andy McNabb type stuff. Almost all of that, that is with the full approval of the Ministry of Defence, uh, where it actually impinges on things which might be semi-secret. But the whole issue is, this is a change, it's happening progressively, it's going to continue, and the early indications are it's going to work no better than anything else, which has been pretty disastrous over the last 15 years. Let me just leave it at that point, just as an introduction to set the scene uh, for the greater detail and have plenty of time for discussion. Okay. Paul, thank you very much indeed. Uh, over to you, Karen. Do you want to use that more? Um, so first of all, uh, I'd just like to say thank you to the organisers for having me here today. Uh, it's really great to see so many representatives from such a broad array of organisations coming here today to discuss these really important issues. So I'm very happy to be a part of this. I managed the Remote Control Project, which has been running for nearly three years now. It is a project of the Network for Social Change, um, and it's hosted by Oxford Research Group. Our project examines current military trends in war that take place at a distance. So this means we look at issues around increased use of special forces, private military companies, cyber activities, and of course, drones. We are particularly interested in how effective these policies are in the long term, and whether or not they are really achieving the long-term strategic aims of peace and stability. Today uh, we will be hearing discussions on a number of remote control areas, uh, including PMSEs and use of special forces, 
all of which are areas that our project works on. But today I will focus my discussions on one aspect of remote control, which is drones. So I will use a case study of Pakistan, as we've commissioned some uh, pieces of work which look at this region and provide some very interesting insights. While much debate is focused on the ethics, legality and the uh, civilian costs of this new technology, I would like to speak on the broader repercussions drones have had on Pakistan as a whole and how they've shaped the country in the past decade. Um, so, uh, it's 11 years this year since the first reported US drone strike in Pakistan. Uh, since 2004, the US has launched uh, more than 400 strikes in federally administered tribal areas as part of its global war on terror. There have been debates in the literature on the number of civilians killed in strikes and notable studies on the psychological impact of drone strikes on populations who live in the areas affected in Pakistan. We even covered data which adds to this picture of the effects of this drone strike policy. Um, research into the impact of drone strikes on terrorist behaviour, published by us in June, shows that drones are having a far wider impact on um, civilian populations beyond those directly killed in the strikes themselves. Dr. Paul Gill analysed data on drone strikes and terrorist attacks between 2004 and 2013 at the monthly, weekly, and daily levels. He found that terrorist reprisals following a drone strike are disproportionately more likely to target civilians. Now, this is because although terror groups slow down their activities in the immediate after aftermath of a drone strike for basic security reasons, uh, when they do re-emerge, the attack that follows will likely be one that doesn't necessitate the lengthy planning of high-value targets. So the focus instead will be on softer targets, so that's civilians, leading to an increase in fatality rates. When assessing the human cost of drone warfare, we should also bear in mind this trend. Uh, last year, Dr. Wadi Aslam from the University of Bath carried out an examination for us on the societal impact of drone strikes in Pakistan. He found that a narrow focus on the number of individuals killed by drone strikes in Pakistan does not reveal the full effects of these strikes on society. We should mention that US drone strikes aren't solely responsible for terrorist relocation from Pakistan's northwest. Uh, so various operations initiated by the Pakistan army have also contributed to this eventuality. And it's difficult to determine what proportion of these individuals have been pushed out by either of these two factors. So Karachi and Kerm Agency are two examples from this work that I'm going to speak about. Um, this, this slide shows a map of Pakistan with a, an overview of the relocation trends from the tribal areas to other parts of Pakistan. And this is a map showing the movement within tribal areas themselves. Uh, Karachi, it's the capital of Sindh province. Uh, Karachi is the capital of Sindh province and it's Pakistan's largest city with a population of about 23 million. So that's one of the largest cities in the world. It was known for its secular character and its business oriented nature and it generates approximately 70% of Pakistan's GDP. 
But the interesting fact about this major city is that it remained relatively free from strife until almost the end of 2009. Since early 2010, it has been experiencing some of the worst violence in its history, uh, resulting in death and injury to thousands of civilians. <coughs> so the question here is, what changed during that time in Karachi to spark such violence in the city, to a violence that is continuing today? So two explanations are offered in his research. The first is that um, with the Pakistani army starting major military operations in South Waziristan in November 2009, migrants were pushed to the south and Pashtuns from these areas joined their brethren to find safe havens in the city, so destabilizing the ethnic balance of Karachi and leading to conflict over scarce resources. However, this ethnic explanation is inadequate as the city has previously witnessed a large influx of migrants as a result of the Afghanistan Jihad in the 1980s without such a wave of violence. So the frequency of drone strikes in Pakistan's tribal areas appears to offer a better explanation. Drone strikes more than doubled between 2009 and 2010. After 2010, militants fled the tribal areas of Pakistan to Karachi because the drones cannot target this really populated city. Uh, the city is the largest Pashto-speaking city in the world, and it is easier for members of the Pashtun ethnic group to take refuge there. An increase in attacks on secular political parties, kidnapping, and petty crime also occurred after 2010. So, uh, Dr. Wali Azam uh, uncovered several points in his research. Um, in Karachi, these militants have been involved in arbitrating civil disputes and targeting members of secular political parties who have been traditionally supported by the majority of the inhabitants in the city. Pakistani police and intelligence officials have claimed that these militants are involved in kidnappings for ransom, bank robberies, street robberies, and other heinous crimes. And the individuals find that they can have a better lifestyle than Karachi in comparison to the tribal areas. Uh, the proceeds generated by these crimes are often channeled back to various militant groups in the tribal areas also, which is um, quite problematic. So while some terrorists are fleeing drone strikes um, and have chosen to leave the tribal areas, others have chosen to take refuge in the relatively safer agencies of the tribal areas. And one of these is Kurram Agency, which is surrounded by Afghan territory to the north and to the west, and borders north of the Iraqistan Agency to the south. The tribal agency of Kurram has attracted a number of terrorists, being the heavily targeted parts of the tribal areas, such as North Waziristan Agency, which has been the prime target of drones. It is home to the largest population of Shia Muslims in tribal areas, and it's endured only a limited number of strikes, making it an attractive place for those trying to escape drones. The territory is also a suitable destination for a number of Taliban fighters, given its location and its proximity to major urban hubs in Afghanistan, including Kabul and Jalalabad. So the move by terrorists to relocate to Kurram and use its access routes has been resisted actually by the locals. This in turn resulted in anti-Shia violence uh, in uh, Kurram Agency's capital and it's left hundreds of casualties. 
It has been estimated that since 2007, the Tory Shia tribe of Purim has lost about 2,000 members to violence. So let's not forget other ways of building stability in regions. Some of you are already involved in such activities. Uh, for example, our friends at Peace Direct, who are here today, support the work of Aware Girls, who are a network of young volunteers dedicated to saving their peers from indoctrination and radicalization in these tribal areas. I believe that more than 4,000 at-risk young people were reached by over 200 trained youth activists. And they use different peer education models, um, so including things like study circles, book groups, movie screenings, and that sort of thing. My program has now reached a stage where we would like to also look at activities that actually foster long-term stability. There's no one quick answer to this, but we are hoping to uncover effective activities like these that will help eliminate the root drivers of insecurity in regions. There's no doubt that uh, when looking at the primary military objectives, some drone strikes could be deemed a success by some people. The research that has been carried out for us, however, highlights how difficult it is to measure the overall success of drone strikes without considering a range of factors, some of which are very difficult to identify or analyse in the short term. When the terrorists moved to other areas spreading trouble and radicalisation, and where homegrown terrorism appears, the situation becomes really problematic. And the danger of never-ending wars through the spread of terrorism is something that nobody here wants to contemplate, and highlights the difficult but important task of addressing the underlying problems wherever possible. So, to conclude, the use of drone strikes is a tactic like other forms of warfare, and it needs to be fitted into a prior strategy and analysed in terms of how we will meet the long-term objective of peace and security. So, I'll finish there. Thank you very much, Caroline. Richard. We've, got, we've had a drone strike on our own. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a technologist? See, are you a technologist? I'm willing to try. <laughs> turn it off and turn it on again. Yes, screen. Oh, I see. Maybe it's a case of turning off and turning off again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there we go. Oh, that's good. That looks helpful. Yeah. I just might take the microphone while you're sort things out. Um, Paul, can I ask you just to, well, well, we're talking about how, how does the Oxford Research Group work? Is it a, how is it funded and who? Oxford Research Group. Oxford Research Group is is a think tank. It's quite Quakerish in its style, um, and it works in two main areas: uh, Middle East conflicts and sustainable security. Middle East work involves a lot of track two diplomacy, bringing people together behind the scenes. And it's been really made some very interesting work 
particularly between the United States and Iran. Um, the rest of uh, remote control is mainly on the sustainable security side, and Richard, of course, is running that. It is funded primarily from trusts, has had money from the Norwegian government, uh, but it gets money from individuals and from trusts, quite a lot of it from the usual Quaker trusts. Uh, the remote control project is separately funded directly by the Network for Social Change, which is essentially a collection of about 100 individual, individuals who raise money from their own personal resources. And they raise about 1.4 uh, million a year for a very wide range of projects. These include major projects which run for three to six years with funding of up to about 150,000 a year. Um, in fact, the Great Transition Project, which I mentioned, from the New Economics Foundation was funded initially by the network and they're still part funders. Okay. Fantastic, Paul, well, thank you very much. And in the meantime, although we can't see it on the screen, can you manage with that, Richard? Is that okay? Yeah, I yeah. can. Perfect. Great. Thank you. Thank you, sorry for the disruption. Um, as Paul said in his introduction, we don't actually know where British National Operations Forces operate. Um, that's not wholly new. It's rather new where they operate and the number of places they operate, I think. In the old days, we didn't know where only a few weapon systems were. We didn't know where uh, nuclear weapons were necessarily. That's partly been uh, tackled by verification mechanisms. Of course, we still don't know where submarines are when they're on patrol. But now we don't know where our special operations forces are all over the world. Also we're also not allowed to know where British um, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles are. We know they're not allowed to fly in nuclear aerospace, because even though they're based in Lincolnshire, they're not permitted to fly in nuclear aerospace, so we have to keep them somewhere abroad. Do you know where they are? <laughs> I'm not sure I do. I believe some of them are operating over Iraq and certainly Syria, because they started a, a targeted killing campaign over Syria. Which, which and how many of our 10 MQ-9 uh, Reaper drones are, are there and which are elsewhere, I'm not quite sure. A couple of people in the UK government have told me that they are uh, at least one in uh, Djibouti and or in Chad in Africa. They may be, they may not. I don't have evidence on this. The point of this presentation is to, to look at the idea of remote warfare in one particular um, Theatre, a new frontier. I call this the next frontier and the new normal. And it's about uh, Africa, which is the US uh, Africa Combat Command, the newest combat command in the US forces, uh, and how it uses Africa, and particularly the Sahel Sahara, as a sort of laboratory for this uh, new warfare. So I'm not going to talk very much about UK forces. There's a little bit of UK presence in the area. Um, an increasing amount of US and a lot of French forces. So those have been the, the forces and technologies that I want to concentrate on. This is just a quote from the US Defense Budget uh, legislation in 2014, that the House Committee believes that the US Africa Command is on the front lines of the next phase of the terrorist threat. This is a point where the US was withdrawing most of its forces from Afghanistan. Um, 5th of June, almost prophetic there because it was within days of the uh, ISIS assault on, on Mosul and the, the, uh, the recommitment of US forces steadily to the, to the wars in uh, Iraq and Syria. But Africa hasn't gone away either as a theatre. 
When we talk about the pivot of US forces to Asia, there's also been an Af a pivot to Africa of US forces. This is what the US uh, considers the, the front line in Northwest Africa. Uh, the Sahara, the Sahel, so that's a US government map of, of groups that consider terrorist groups in their operating areas in Northwest Africa. This map is perhaps the, the crux of the issue. And all this, this is basically research that I did through the former remote control project for this report uh, from New Frontier to New Normal as terrorism operations in the Sahel Sahara last year. A lot of research, a lot of it was out of this map. Now, when AFRICOM was set up as a combat command um, almost 10 years ago, there's a lot of press about having whether or not it would happen, whether or not it would have bases in Africa. Uh, what they said is we don't, we're a new kind of combat command, we don't want to have bases. And then they created a base in Djibouti, over there by Yemen, Somalia. And to be fair to the US uh, armed forces, that remains the only major base. There's about 3,000 US forces over there. However, in the years since, and particularly since 2013, just the last two years, there's been a real constellation of US forward operating bases or, or small operation centers that have sprung up all over Africa. So the key to this map, the, the blue stars, like this one in Agadez, like the Army in Niger, are US military bases or facilities. The red stars are uh, French military bases. Um, you can see there's a lot of them. Pretty much every country in that Sahel Sahara area, and quite a lot of the east center of Africa as well, has US or French bases. And this is something quite different because they're not major bases, they're very light touch forward bases. This is the extent of the new frontiers, as I'm calling it. Um, what I mean by the new normal is a policy that is given this name but not very much talked about, except in you have to dig deep in the documents, it keeps coming up with the new normal. The US has to be able to do to implement the new normal policy. And the new normal policy is a response to the attack on the US consulate and the killing of the US ambassador in Benghazi in September 2012, which was hugely embarrassing and distressing to the US administration. Since then, how the policy is that anywhere in Africa, it needs to be able to go in with special forces in sufficient quantities to protect US citizens and US interests at about six hour notice. The consequence of that policy is also they need to have forward positions, special forces, and equipment to be able to do that. And the, the, the force multiplier for technologies to operate those forces in there. This is just a, a technology. The Boeing B-22 Osprey is a vertical takeoff conventional flight aircraft. Um, this is important because it, it negates the traditional problem of littoral warfare, which is to say, how do you get your forces into a country? Um, traditionally, you do it from a helicopter carrier offshore, which means you can only operate a few hundred miles inland because that's the range of a helicopter. These things can go thousands of miles. 
much faster than helicopter to operate with uh, this, which is a KC-130J uh, Hercules uh, transporting refueling tanker, which means that you can operate these almost in indefinitely over, over many thousands of miles, uh, fly very fast, and then land versus like a helicopter. So you don't need to have um, forces in country, you can have concentrations of forces and then drop them in pretty quickly. Uh, that's a, a uh, forward afloat staging base. The US is about to position in the Gulf of Guinea, off West Africa, uh, which means you don't even need to have bases on shore because you can operate the same technologies. There you can see the B-22 Osprey uh, taking off from the deck of one of these things, potentially to drop forces uh, anywhere on shore. And of course, to be effective, the third thing, which is the unmanned aerial vehicle, the drones, um, like the MQ-9 Rainbow, these are French aircraft in, in Niger, the Afan, which is a French technology, and the, the Reaper, which is a US, much more capable technology. That's the range of those two systems. So the star in the middle from which these radiate from is uh, Niamey Air Base 101, where both the French and US have these systems. The red circle is how far a Reaper can, can, can operate. Uh, it's about 1,800 kilometers, as you can see from that, from that one base, it covers uh, most of West Africa. The other two stars are bases in Agadez, Niger, and Northern Cameroon, which the US is currently setting up, which will have the same technologies operating over a larger area. And I'm expecting to be more of those similar bases set up over the few, coming few years. Um, The other way of doing this is through this. And this looks rather like a light aircraft that you see at any small airport in the world. It's actually a, um, a U-28A spy aircraft operated not by the US Air Force, but by private military contractors employed by the, the Pentagon to do their surveillance flights for them from a network of small bases across uh, West Africa. The reason this isn't in military camouflage is A, it's not officially a US military aircraft, and B, it's not supposed to be detected. It's supposed to be um, almost invisible operating from any old airport. Just to take you back to my. What else have we got? Well, the technology to, to, to drop special forces into anywhere around the region uh, depends on something called as. Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force. Marines dropped from these systems. Uh, over the last year, the US established uh, operating facilities for those in Dakar, Senegal, Accra, Ghana, and Libreville, Gabon. Uh, in addition to the main base, which is where that blue star is in southern Spain, uh, and the other one on Sicily, which is where the parent bases are for these things. What does this mean? I mean, here we're not talking about vast volumes of forces. In the red stars, the French have maybe three to four thousand forces who were deployed all across the Sahel. The US, we really don't know how many forces they have because they're special operations forces, so we can't know where they are, we can't know exactly how many they are. And 
puts in mind the situation of, of the estimates. People are saying maybe 5,000 Russian special forces or, or troops have been killed in eastern Ukraine unofficially. How do we know this? Because that's how many Russian forces have had uh, definite services, definite active service pensions paid out over the um, past couple of years without Russia at that point being involved in such operations officially. Uh, we know, as of last year, there were uh, 1,140 U.S. forces on um, receiving active um, in-line-of-fire pay in Africa, without the U.S. formally being involved in any wars there. So there are, there are literally hundreds of U.S. special forces across this region doing various things. There are also hundred maybe special forces in Asia. There are about 300, I think, uh, Dutch special forces in Mali with the UN mission doing um, special forces combat operations. And the British special forces have been deployed in, we know, in Nigeria on certain operations, and in Libya during the conflict there, and in Mali during the French intervention there. So there's an awful lot happening in this region. And it's significant because of the, the lack of accountability or transparency in these operations, the deniability, the covert nature of them, and the way in which they rely on uh, some non-dubious local um, uh, proxies or support, um, and the way they've generally militarized uh, a very large area. The trend is more. I think we'll see more US forces deployed. We'll see the French there pretty much permanently. Uh, we expect British special forces to be um, in and out of some of these operations as well. Um, what next? I think once you've got this kind of constellation of infrastructure, what we're going to call light touch or light footprint warfare. These dozens of scores and bases, the intelligence infrastructure, it becomes rather tempting to use those. I think under the Obama administration, the US is fairly reluctant to get involved in new wars, but I think you can ask yourself, given this, which wasn't there five years ago, what might a different administration do? If the Bush administration had this real of forces, what might it have done? What might its successor do? I want you to think about uh, Libya and Nigeria as, as um, very active conflicts. And what, what would be the uh, impact of all these operations, all this build-up, if those conflicts um, become much more alive? Those are links to the Atlantic States uh, conflict in the Middle East, in which all these actors are, are very intimately involved. I'm just going to talk now uh, more specifically about the Nigeria um, scenario and, and how the remote warfare technologies uh, have some application there. Thank you, Richard. Just um, think quickly. Um, the Nigeria Security Network, of which I'm the director, is the flagship program of a big organization called the AMBAR Initiative. 
Um, we're a, uh, NSN is a, a network of um, security experts, Nigerian and international, all working on the Nigerian conflict. And our, our ethos is that we um, focus on tackling the underlying drivers of the Boko Haram insurgency in Nigeria. Um, we value a human rights-based approach, which the Nigerian government generally hasn't taken so far to the conflict. Um, and we, we prioritize non-violent um, methods of uh, counter-terrorism. But before I talk about uh, Nigeria specifically, let me just um, take us back. I want to think about why, um, why governments use remote warfare. So I'm a little less skeptical, I think, than the others on the panel about the potential for these types of weapons. Um, I'm undecided about how effective they are. So there are three reasons why a government, I think, might use um, remote warfare. The first is, um, as Richard said, they're usually a lot, it's usually a lot easier to keep them secret. So um, unlike with the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, you don't suffer that debilitating setting of public support over time for a conflict. No one knows really that they're being used, or very few people do. Um, they don't know how they're being used. Yes, if a special forces soldier gets killed, it's not really in the news so much. Um, if a drone gets shot down, it's obviously not going to be in the news so much. Um, and if you use private military and security contractors, well, again, it's not going to be um, so controversial. Uh, the, the next reason is obviously they're less costly. That's a no-brainer. Um, and the third reason is um, the more contentious one, I think, which is that there's this idea that they cause less backlash in the places where they're being deployed. And that's the part that I'm interested in. Because our whole purpose in Nigeria is trying to understand how we can most effectively defeat Boko Haram. So is it a matter of deploying thousands and thousands of Nigerian soldiers? Is it a matter of tackling the long-standing underlying drivers of the conflict, socio-economic, religious, whatever it may be? Um, or is it using more innovative novel techniques, which may include elements of remote warfare? So to talk a little bit about um, the Nigerian context, uh, Boko Haram is, in my view, the most brutal insurgency um, in existence today. Um, the stories that I hear are absolutely shocking. Millions of people are displaced in northeast Nigeria. This is a, a terrorist group that's been operating violently since about 2009, an Islamist insurgency um, that is ravaging communities in northeast Nigeria, Chad, parts of Niger, and Cameroon. And it is killing women, children, it is uh, capturing children and using them as child fighters. Most Boko Haram fighters are probably children now, forced, and, and most of them are forced conscripts. Um, so, when we think about what the solution might be, um, we have to understand, I think, that um, we need to focus on, on sapping any support that Boko Haram might have. And surprisingly, despite what I just told you, it does have some support, we think. Uh, we think that um, there are elements of the Kanuri community, which is a particular ethnicity in northeast Nigeria, that do support Boko Haram's aims, that see Boko Haram as a as a way of um, tackling their long-standing political and economic marginalisation. Um, and a lot of the conflicts that are playing out in North northeast Nigeria are, we think, along um, ethnic lines when you go down right into the local dynamics of it. 
So we need to make sure that when we take particular actions, we don't make things worse. And I remember an anecdote um, uh, about um, the war in Afghanistan just before British soldiers deployed in Helmand. Um, the Defence Secretary asked the Special Forces, the British Special Forces, to go into Helmand and kind of scope things out, get a sense of what the situation is. Um, and they came back and they said, there is no insurgency in Helmand province, but you can have one if you want one. And what they meant, what they meant was, um, if you send thousands and thousands of British soldiers to Helmand province, where they're going to be extremely unpopular, you're going to create an insurgency. Um, the, the, the person who commanded special forces in Iraq for many years, General Stanley McChrystal, and then went on to lead the war in Afghanistan for about two years. Um, when asked what was the single biggest turning point <coughs> against the coalition in Iraq, it wasn't a battle that he, said, he cited, it was uh, the Abu Ghraib scandal. Thousands and thousands of people joined the Iraqi insurgency against the coalition after that scandal. This, of course, if you've forgotten, is the torture scandal when US soldiers were caught um, embarrassing, humiliating, torturing um, detainees in Abu Ghraib jail. Um, so, there's a certain appeal to the use of remote warfare. You know, if, if we're um, thinking about solutions that Britain and the US can take, doesn't it seem a bit better, rather than doing Iraq and Afghanistan again, in places like Nigeria, where you send in thousands and thousands of foreign soldiers, to use drones that aren't going to be so controversial, to use small numbers of special forces that aren't going to be so controversial, to um, employ <laughs> private contractors who aren't going to be so controversial, or attract so much scrutiny anyway. So how are these, these methods being deployed in, in Nigeria and the region right now? Um, uh, drones are becoming increasingly prominent, as Richard pointed out. The US have just set up a drone base in Cameroon. Um, I suspect they're going to be using the drones in Cameroon. I, I, don't, I can't say whether they'll be using armed drones in northeast Nigeria. There's a very kind of passive-aggressive relationship between the US and the Nigerian government, and I think that Nigeria's been quite reluctant to get the US directly involved in the conflict. Um, but the main two things are, are the use of private military contractors. Now, at the beginning of this year, the, the, the then Nigerian president, Goodluck Jonathan, coming up to an election, was desperate to say that he had defeated Boko Haram before the election happened. The, the Nigerian army weren't cutting it, and so he hired a bunch of South African mercenaries to come in um, to northeast Nigeria and do the job for them. There's a lot of controversy about what exactly their role was. The Nigerian government maintains that it was training and technical advice, but um, the New York Times and Voice of America did both investigations and found significant evidence that um, South Africans and others had been piloting aircraft and helicopters against Boko Haram in northeast Nigeria, um, had been in direct combat, um, conducting combat operations, um, and indeed you, you can see photos of um, South African mercenaries going through the streets in Maiduguri, which is the capital of Borno State in northeast Nigeria. Um, atop armed trucks with, with heavy weapons. So it's, it's quite clear that they were playing, uh, I think, the evidence shows that they were playing a role um, a little bit beyond technical advisors and, and trainers. Now, we are currently doing some research to understand um, whether the short-term value of these mercenaries, and they were, it seems, quite effective in pushing Boko Haram back for a time, 
um, is outweighed by the long-term damage that using them does. Boko Haram's message is very much anti-Western. It's focused on, um, I mean, the name literally means um, Western education is sinful. Um, they are fundamentally opposed to the Western section of the state, they think Nigeria actually is. And so deploying white South African soldiers up there is bound to kind of feed into their narrative. And we, we're doing some research right now to understand um, to what extent it did. Um, there's also something being published, so you're getting like a sneak peek right now, but um, about 80% of um, Nigerians, and this is nationally, the local results were still to digest, um, support the use of private military contractors against Boko Haram. It's mostly because they're desperate. So it's, it's a case of um, the Nigerian army has failed, and what choice do we have? Um, about 20% of the population don't support the use of which about half don't support the use for reasons that could lend themselves to radicalization. So about 10% of the respondents said that they felt private military and security contractors were trying to either impose Western values on Nigeria, or that it's an example of Western colonialism. Now, how much of a percentage of the population do you think you need to sustain an insurgency long term? How much? Does anyone have any idea how much you need? 5%. Yeah, it's very low. So 5% is probably a little bit low. <coughs> but it's something between 10 to 30% you probably need to sustain it. So even if, you're, even if you're causing anger amongst a very small section of the population, you're still running a risk. So we'll be publishing those results in full early next year. We're doing some focus groups up in northeast Nigeria to understand what local people up there think of it. Um, and you'll be able to see them um, in full. Um, the last thing I want to come on to about Nigeria um, and the Lake Chad region is the use of special forces. Now, um, one of the Ambar Initiative's advisory group members is Chris Colender, who um, ran a special forces brigade in Afghanistan for many years. He has extraordinary results um, in his areas, reducing violence. And that's because his, his soldiers um, stopped being soldiers uh, and they started being diplomats. And what they did is they, they went into communities and instead of aggressively pursuing the Taliban, they started protecting those communities and they started talking to the people in those communities about what their problems were and started helping those communities to kick the Taliban out and close down the political space. So it's a different way of doing warfare and it's a, a kind of warfare, warfare that you can't really do with your average soldier. When your average soldier is, is, is much inclined to talk to a local elder as they are to, you know, in the wrong circumstances, shoot them. But a special forces soldier trained culturally, politically, to understand that their role isn't just military, that in fact maybe their role is, is more political than it is military, can have a real impact. And, and Chris showed that. Now, this, it, this theory, this idea, is very much behind, I think, the use of special forces in Africa. Uh, now, in Niger, the US has just deployed earlier this year about 60 to 100 US Special Forces operators. They're not playing a combat role, but they are on the ground. And what they're doing is they're going to villages in Niger, they're talking to local communities, and they're using their experience and expertise to help these communities understand how to get rid of Boko Haram. Now, that is an invaluable thing to do, because these communities don't really know what to do. And the Nigerian army shortly 
But these guys have been in Afghanistan and Iraq for 10 years, so they know the fundamental concepts of reducing physical space for a terrorist group. I, look, I think it's very early days. I think the evidence suggests that, that drone strikes can be incredibly controversial and damaging um, in fights against terrorism. And I'm, I'm very nervous that there's a drone, drone base setting up in the encampment. Um, the evidence shows that large numbers of soldiers, especially Western soldiers, can make things a lot worse rather than better. Um, and there's certainly evidence that we're discovering that the use of private military contractors can also cause a backlash. But I, I think there is a role, and I think we just need to figure out what that role is. You know, that these soldiers that are deployed in Niger right now are, are not killing anyone, and they are providing some added value. But I think it's a conversation that needs to go on, and I think conclusions have yet to be reached. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew. Um, I don't, not quite sure how to manage this with just one microphone, but I'm going to suggest that I rave around with this microphone to get questions from the floor. And if you guys can share, assuming this microphone works, is that, is that going to work or do you want to rave? Why don't you rave? Who do you want to take first? Um, Stefan here, and then there. And then, should we do, is it, um, should we do three questions at a time? Does that work? Yeah. Those three, and then we'll um, Could you say so, who you are? Uh, I'm Farrak. I'm Farrak. I'm a student studying lower level here. Um, this is a question for anyone on the panel. Um, I was interested to know tactics special forces actually brought into communities to keep out the Taliban and um, to close down the political space. I'm very interested to know what that is. Thank you very much. Over here. Thanks. Hello, my name is William from Medaps. This is for City of Paul. Um, this map, if you care to look in the Scramble for Africa, the famous book about um, the 1880s European attempts to uh, colonize and extract resources from that continent. I think this map probably appears early in that book. And that begs this question to Paul, really. Um, what exactly do you think that the US, the United States, and the rest of the West that are involved in, in this new frontier caper are trying to achieve um, here? Because it's not obvious, and you and others have said just now that they're not going to get very far in their stated objectives. I think that's a reasonable okay. translation of what you said. So that's the Is there a question just next? If you want to just take the microphone, so I'm, I'm and then Sorry, I'll. You said I was oh, okay. In fact, please go ahead. Please go ahead. <laughs> Absolutely. Then we'll come back to you, sir. Thank you. Could, could you just say who you are, please? Yeah, yeah. My name is John. I'm a student. Um, I was just going to ask the, the spread of terror, or the war on terror, and it seems to be a fairly obvious projection of terror to, to have widespread drone bases above people's heads. Um, another thing, how, at what point is artificial intelligence going to come in the decision-making arc as far as these, these um, weapon systems operating? There is how thin are the borders in these territories because um, they appear quite thin. 
this is another issue that's coming in. And as far as that links in with international law uh, about the transparency of carrying out whatever goes on with these weapon systems, and how does international law get enforced? It's clearly, there's a, appears to be a very gross abuse of international law. Thank you very much. Is this microphone working? Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know who'd like to start. Uh, we've got the, how did the special forces keep up the Taliban? We've got the scramble for Africa in the modern age, um, and the international law across very thin borders and the use of artificial intelligence. Who? Do the second one. Good. All you guys in relation to what you might call the scramble for Africa, I think if you look back over the last 10 or 15 years, the prime motivation on the US side is probably twofold. One is the concern about the rapid increase in Chinese interest in Africa, particularly African resources, and the need in a sense of not to counter that, to have a separate presence. I think the other is actually a concern about the uh, increase in extreme Islamist movements uh, in and south of Sahara, including right down what we call the Swahili coast, uh, Kenya and Tanzania. Uh, and I think essentially they're seeing it as part of the, the war, if you like, against um, extreme Islamist movements. So I think it probably initially it was more concerned with rivalry with China, but now it's moved also to that dimension as well. That, that I think would be my view. Thanks. And Andrew, do you want to do the um, I do. Taliban? I need the actual mic the other microphone because that's not going to Let's just use the other one. This one's a bit weird. To answer your question as quickly as I can, um, number one, they didn't make, um, they don't make the same very foolish errors um, that uh, normal soldiers usually do. To give you two examples, um, in Afghanistan, um, Chris was in a community, um, and some soldiers had decided to go and uh, build a new well um, for the women of the community that's closer to the village because they thought that would be more convenient. Um, so they built it and then they, they went to the community afterwards and they found that all the women were scowling at them and we were really angry and didn't want to talk to them. And they wondered why. Chris discovered that um, the women quite liked travelling the distance away from the village because they liked having, being able to talk to each other away from the men. So another, another example. Um, some soldiers deployed to another village. Um, it's a classic one that happens all the time. They set up a, a, a command post um, on the edge of the village from which they could watch everything. And they set it up in the most kind of tactical location so they could see the whole village and they could see the enemy coming. Um, and then they built latrines next to the command post. Um, unfortunately, the latrines were right next to the water source of the village. And so they poisoned the, water, the village's water source. So special forces, um, the ones that Chris led anyway, well, the soldiers that Chris led uh, were taught, taught not to make mistakes. They were taught to think, always think about what it is that the community members actually want and to ask and to understand. So that's the first thing. Second thing, a number of things that they do. Um, the first thing is dividing the so-called real Taliban, that is the hardcore committed fighters who cannot, whose minds cannot be changed, from the ones um, who are fighting for various different other reasons. So maybe they're fighting for economic reasons, they don't have a job or they may, may be fighting because, um, uh, because they are part of one tribal group um, who, feel, who feel disempowered because the job's been given to a, a man from another tribal group. So they try and resolve the political dispute rather than just killing them. Um, 
And usually um, you, you find that uh, most of the Taliban in a particular area would be Taliban who had fought for reasons other than being hardcore extremists. Um, so dividing those off and then addressing the political problems and the economic problems rather than just conducting combat made a huge difference. Um, second thing, uh, simple gathering of intelligence once you're actually in a community and you know what to look out for and you start to gain the trust of the community, they will start to talk to you and they'll start to tell you, oh, we heard that the Taliban put IEDs down that road. So be careful, don't go on that road today. And before, they would go on the road and they'd get blown up. So when you gain the trust of the community and they start telling you things, you reduce your casualties and you start to gain the trust as well. Um, last thing, uh, bizarrely, uh, providing skills to the young men in, in, in villages. They will teach them things, teach them how to do things, teach them how to make things. They will help to deliver development projects. Um, things that aid workers couldn't do because it's a combat zone, but they will start to do these things. It sounds very odd, but the soldiers became aid workers, they became diplomats, they became social workers, they became all sorts of things other than being soldiers. So a number of, a number of different um, ways. Thanks, Alejandro. Carol. Um, just to add to that, um, the problem really around special forces is that we don't fully know what they're doing. Um, we, you know, there are issues around transparency and accountability. Uh, by their very nature, we don't have a lot of information on them. So it's very difficult for us to actually see how, um, how their actions are going to pan out in the long term. And then secondly, um, as I was mentioning um, earlier on, uh, these policies in general, remote control policies, don't seem to be fit, fit into a wider strategy, looking at the very long-term effects of, um, of uh, you know, the, the policies. And, and they don't seem to be um, really addressing long-term issues of peace and security in regions and they're having knock-on effects. So um, we have quite a number of problems around um, special forces, uh, particularly in the areas of, kind of transparency and accountability and just their overall strategic uh, aims. Thanks, uh, Richard. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. A good deal of issues with what Andrew says there in terms of special operations forces. Um, I think it's tremendously dangerous when you blur the boundaries between military roles, defence, development, diplomacy. Development should not be done by soldiers. There are occasionally times when only military engineers or, or protected units can do things, but not most of the time. There's been a huge problem in Afghanistan with uh, provincial reconstruction teams and the militarization of it. The budget for the foreign office in the UK is slashed and slashed and slashed while the military budget is kept. If you're giving diplomatic roles to soldiers, you are not giving them to the correct people. It's like the argument that the best way to respond to a humanitarian emergency is to send an aircraft carrier. Now sometimes there can be an aircraft carrier that has certain capabilities that can respond, like Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines. That's a fantastically inefficient way of responding to a humanitarian emergency. The people who are trained and equipped and armoured in hugely expensive vehicles to do something very, very different indeed. I think that there's a military narrative that, that 
that spin special operations forces as kind of superheroes who can do everything. And they can't. And they are first and foremost extremely well-trained soldiers who are very good at um, the hunter-killer role. And to, make the, to, to believe that they are the correct people to be doing development and diplomacy is to fall into to a, a, a trap, a spin. I mean, it's like the, the UK talks about the right people to, to uh, do peacekeeping in our roles in Afghanistan because we did so well in Northern Ireland. It took us 30 years in Northern Ireland, and then we got a political settlement that, that settled that conflict. And we didn't win the war in Afghanistan, and we didn't win the war in Iraq. Back to Iraq, we created ISIS through the role of special forces. So I really take issues with the idea that, that uh, the uh, benign forces. Richard, can you answer John's question then about um, about uh, how international law is enforced, the, the thinness of the borders and the transparency and the role of uh, artificial intelligence, or the, or the potential growth, I think, of artificial intelligence? I can approach that. I mean, in terms of international law, that's uh, one of the very problematic things around us. The US has a prioritizing concept of using uh, some special forces and intelligence concepts, like the use of um, intelligence gathering aircraft operating from Burkina Faso, uh, like the use of private forces to actually deliver special operation forces uh, into theater and as search and rescue forces if things go wrong. They actually issue contracts to private companies to do this. Um, and clearly there are issues about, around that for the use of mercenaries in Nigeria which um, have barely begun to be addressed. Um, artificial intelligence and the automation of remotely piloted systems is, is a huge issue um, which doesn't particularly apply in the Africa context I'm talking about um, and it is, is a major legal issue at the moment in terms of um, who makes the decision, who's in the loop to actually use offensive force um, and there are a lot of campaigns around to try and um, limit the use of what's called killer robots um, which is quite different than the use of remotely parking vehicles because there is a human in, in the loop um, but to go beyond that it is opening a Pandora's box as well Thank you, and Andrew, you may want to come back and what um, Richard just said, but I mean, I'm just going to get some more from the audience. So here are three. The gentleman's hand up, lady in the green at the back, and the lady in the um, purple at the window. And, well, sorry, gentleman, hand up, lady in the green, lady with the purple. Hi, my name's Paul Redway, um, from Sheffield, um, former public health. I spent some time in, in Latin America in the late 70s when everywhere we went we met peace people. Goodness, what were they about? And we subsequently found out that they were producing reports for CIA. And I, I just think this whole discussion um, in the context of this you know, fantastic talk earlier um, about you know the way we're in the thralls of the neoliberal politics, in economics, nationally, internationally. I, I'm I'm just really concerned that you know that the map that we've got in front of us is about you know big companies getting the natural resources out, and I don't think they've got any other nothing else. What is there? And I, but what I I, mean, I think 
the only thing to be said is that, that my question is, you know, how do they, how on earth do they think it's going to work to produce anything other than sort of more conflict? And in fact, maybe you could actually look at the Middle East and the oil-rich countries there and feel that they actually keep on trying to produce conflict so that they can offer the oil and everybody's mouths. Sorry, am I too skitsy? No, I think you're probably not, but that was very helpful. Thank you. And the lady in the green at the back. Of course. Thank you. I'm not sure it's working. That might, uh, yep, That's it. Now it is. It seems to cut out if you have it too close to you, I think. Sorry, it's not working the microphone again. I'm it's not your fault. I think it keeps cutting out. Thank you very much. And the lady by the window. See, let's see the microphone one more time. See if we can. It does seem to work, but it's a bit intermittent. Thank you. Uh, my name's Pat. I work with Pat Christie, which is a, another peace movement. I'd be interested to um, hear what people have to say about a strategy of targeted killings and targeted assassinations, which seem to be growing. We know about them in relation to Palestine, Syria, Afghanistan. I'm not sure about the new frontier, if it's been used as a, a, a strategy there. Um, I'd like to know what people feel, what this is saying, or how this is challenging international law and issues of sovereignty. And I can only assume that targeted killings are adding to the backlash of ISIS and Daesh. Thank you very much. So we've got, um, what on earth is Peace Corps doing? And um, is it just big companies getting their hands on natural resources. Uh, what about the long-term potential for conflict prevention and could NGOs have a better role in that? And then um, the role of targeted killings and international law. Paul, I'll start with you again. Uh, I'll respond to two of those. On the first one about the role of the Peace Corps and the rest, I don't know, but one personal experience was when I worked in uh, uh, Kenya for a while, I was sharing a bungalow with 
um, a guy who was with the Canadian University Service overseas, the CUSO, the equivalent of VSO or the Peace Corps, uh, and he was working for quite a big agricultural research organization. And he was very surprised to get a visit from an officer at the Canadian High Commission in Nairobi, who basically wanted to ask him a lot of questions about his work and how this organization worked, uh, and how essentially he saw uh, the, the development of different programs in that part of Kenya. Um, he was actually very reluctant to do so and actually finally refused to do so. Now whether you say this is the legitimate job of a High Commission person wanting to understand a, a country more or whether it's maybe part of an intelligence operation, one simply doesn't know. But I think this in a sense is what uh, happens in a lot of embassies by many countries across the world. They will look for expatriates who may have a closer link with particular communities to get better information than they can themselves. And there's a very big grey area involved in that. On the issue of targeted killings, I think the problem is that if a country believes that it is reasonable to kill somebody that they cannot capture and bring to trial, uh, and if that country has the ability to do it either by special forces snatch squads or by drones, then that country may say it's justifying it in terms of its own security. But the problem is source of the goose is source of the gander. So is it therefore legitimate for Russia to target somebody not in eastern Ukraine but around Kiev? Um, is it reasonable for, well, for Russian to actually target a severe dissident in Britain who Russia believes is a serious threat to their own security? I think the problem is it does open up a very big can of worms, quite apart from the uh, essential legality or otherwise of it. And if you s this, I think, is the same case with drones. There are drones now being developed, armed drones, by quite a number of countries. Caroline could probably remind me of them. But it is no longer just uh, the United States and Israel and then selling them. Many other countries are doing this, uh, including, for example, Iran. Uh, and so I think here, again, it's the proliferation both of targeted killing and drones themselves, uh, none of which are liable to any form of arms control, is actually something which I think is largely missed at the present time. Thanks, Paul. Uh, okay. um, I'll just make a comment on, um, on the, the point on Latin America and how is it going to produce anything else but more conflict. Um, I, what I'd say to that is exactly. Um, really, um, you know, remote control is a tactic. It's not an answer to um, conflicts. We need something that addresses the root drivers of insecurity. We need something that's a long-term strategy and something that's building stability in a region. That ultimately is what's going to work. Um, so, and then just I might just uh, make a few comments on um, on uh, uh, what um, other sort of alternatives um, could, you know to to remote control could be um, used. I was, I was at a conference last um, weekend in Zurich, um, and uh, I was. Um, we're presenting alongside uh, a group of uh, people from the US Air Force and the message from them was that they're doing their job so they're doing their job in terms of um, carrying out their mission and you know uh, achieving their um, military aims but there is absolute agreement that there needs to be a longer term kind of strategy um, and I, you know, I was just um, having having a chat with them, and uh, the message really was diplomacy. 
So um, I think that um, we need to sort of somehow get the message to our governments that this needs to be part of our um, defence plans, our security plans for the future, you know, diplomatic efforts. Um, and then what can, um, how can the NGO community help? Um, well, I believe that we should really be getting together and um, seeing sort of what, what we're doing, what actually works, um, and maybe coming together and having a, a joined up strategy with government. So I think really, it, it, you know, the first step would be for us all to communicate with each other on what we're doing um, and go forward from there. Thanks, Richard. So that's <laughs> Thanks. Um, I don't actually agree that the US is in this vast swathe of West Africa for economic reasons. The US doesn't actually have huge interest in uh, mining in particular in this area. France does, and part of the reason I think that France has bolstered its presence is it, uh, particularly in respect because it gets most of its uranium from Niger and Uranium drives the French energy sector, which actually also powers Germany and Belgium and Spain and Italy and places around Europe. And for the French, they can be seen, unlike the Chinese, to be your friend with guns. And they will look after you if you have a mine in their territory. The US doesn't do so much of that. I think the reason the US has so many bases and, and military interests across this area is the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of the, the ungoverned space that needs the US the government to occupy it. Um, so they go looking for terrorists and they find terrorists and a war is created. The problem I think is it's really creating a system of generalized war or uh, no war or no peace. And the US isn't at war in any of these countries and yet there are large numbers of US Special Operations Forces somewhere in this region that takes him around. Not big bases, no, probably no combat aircraft in most of this, apart from Djibouti. Only two of the drones actually in this area. They're unarmed. Um, and yet, that is the, the context people constantly live in of, of counterterrorism operations potentially targeting their area. Um, there haven't been targeted killings in that we know of anyway in most of this area is through drones. The only one I can think of since the war in Libya was um, this summer a US airstrike on um, the leader of some militant groups in Ashgabia, which is in northeast Libya, um, from effects in Europe, presumably. Um, however, one of the interesting things about this theatre is that. Um, France has a mandate from the UN as part of the MINUSMA mandate, which is the UN mission in Mali, to supplement that mission through offensive operations. And the UN there has licensed and mandated France to do whatever it likes, targeted killings um, to particular actors who are deemed impossible outside the peace process. So basically the Al-Qaeda affiliates um, in northern Mali. That's new and dangerous. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. I hope I can answer two of these questions <laughs> and also come back slightly on Richard's point very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> all at the same time. Um, uh, Richard, you're right. You know, there's, no, there's no way um, that you win a war like this um, 
the one in Syria or the one in Nigeria militarily. There is no military solution to any of these conflicts, really. Um, the solutions have to be, in response to your question, long-term. They have to really be non-violent. They have to address the underlying causes. Um, in, in northeast Nigeria, there are lots of underlying causes, um, so many. Uh, there's a long-standing marginalization of uh, the Kanuri people in Nigeria. There's a long-standing marginalization of young men within the Kanuri ethnicity by their Kanuri elders. Um, there is um, religious, religious extremism. Um, there is extremely poor governance and corruption. Um, and there's the economic drivers as well. There is the fact that there are just not enough jobs for people, and people are very poor. And a lot of young men go and join Boko Haram because they've got nothing else to do. They've got no money. And Boko Haram pay quite well. Same is true in a lot of other conflicts. So these things have to be addressed, and, and by and large, the solutions are going to be uh, non-military, non-violent, and they have to be. Um, but that said, you know, um, I really welcome Richard's research because we need to understand better what the role of special forces in Africa is and can be. Um, I think that where small numbers of special forces are playing a non-violent role and are providing added value, we should keep an open mind. Um, I certainly don't think that when you have special forces going into communities, doing night raids, killing people, capturing people, rounding up young men, which is what they have done in Afghanistan a lot, uh, I certainly wouldn't endorse that kind of behaviour because it just makes things worse. Um, so I, I, I very much hope for um, a long-term solution to all of these conflicts, and I think that's the only, that's the only way to go. Thanks, Andrew. Um, another round of three, well, gosh, we'll see. If, if people can make their questions really short, we might be able to get through. So I'm going to just hope that's what you'll do. I'm going to start with the, starting at the back. Just raise your hands again. Um, gentleman in the brown in the cardigan, the man with the beard, excuse me, um, using these short terms. The lady with the leather jacket, um, gentleman there, and there. So we're going to have five, and you're going to have pretty much one sentence each, okay? Um, gentleman in the cardigan in the back, yeah. Just keep your, just raise your hands again so we can see where you are. One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. Yeah, I'm a social surgeon. I'm a consultant, and I just come from one of the wars. So you mentioned several times. Uh, my experience from my work in the 80s in England, and I used to be the director of most of the NGOs. One of the problems in those countries is that you end up uh, removing fundamentalists, replacing them with corrupt open minded people and having dual citizenship and then whenever the system collapses, you come back to the UK or America. So I think we need to be transparent even the diplomacy. I visited a country which I come from and the deputy minister of that took me to show his policies in which you actually how much did you pay you and it's just consultant. I can't afford to be too flat in London. And the person who was mainly quite one of the founders of most international NGOs. See, that's his right one hand. So I think we need to be transparent, sort a little bit. That's why I ask people, you, you were back in favor of Taliban, surprisingly. People who hated it, and he said, at least, at least he brought some peace, peace like in the grave, dark peace. Maybe these people replaced by foreign dual citizens, Afghans who claim to be open-minded. Anyway, you can't go back to their Swiss account, England account, 
Thank you. Thank you very much. Pass the gentleman in front of you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Nicholas. I'm a former student, David McCoy, Why we're using words like terrorist and islamist as if they all mean the same thing and can we stop? Um, I'm not the right person to make that, but I think we should be more precise with our words, particularly if we're talking about in Syria and Iraq, where they're all funded by terrorists. That's to my question. Instead of intervening more, can we intervene less? And what I mean by that is, what are these economic factors you're talking about? What are our economic interests in these areas? Can we boycott them? Could that be a campaign? Very good, thank you. And the lady in the leather jacket to the right. Um, hi, I'm also a global student and I just wanted to talk about Nigeria um, in particular. Why is it that um, the conflict going on in the north, which has been going on for a long time, internationally isn't given much focus as the conflict going on in the Middle East? Um, secondly, whether the change in government that's happened in Nigeria has had any effect on the control of the Quran? Thank you very much. And then, gentlemen, diagonally. This is marvellous. Keep going. <laughs> uh, hi, everyone. My name's Chris. I'm a global health student as well. Um, I'm particularly interested in um, the emphasis that's been placed on drones as a method of destructive force. And I was wondering whether the panel believes um, drones, um, aerial and land based, could be used possibly as a means of disaster relief in these areas and to deliver. Thank you very much. And then the lady at the front. Um, hello, Suzanne Pastuki from Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh. Um, I just wanted to ask a little bit to just at the, at the panel about what debate is happening um, at the, by the UN and by the Security Council. If there's anything in terms of particular UN agencies who are trying to sort of have at least an open debate about the use and the control and the accountability of these weapons because increasingly it does seem to be across the, the communities that we're all involved with that the use of drones is becoming normalized particularly amongst you know young people in a sense it's it's become part of um you know, of youth culture in a sense through video games etc it just seems to be increasingly acceptable to by communities that oh it's saving lives as well of our armed forces so it's it's something that I think is increasingly um, being um, accepted by our wider communities as well so it's something obviously that we need to really get to grips with thank you very much so um, panel you have we have three minutes until the close of the session so please keep your answers short and concise. we've got the problem of foreign dual nationals corruption um, extremists being placed by replaced by corrupt individuals we've got um, the uh, imprecision of terrorism and Islamism as terms, and should we intervene less? What are our economic interests? We've got whether the conflict in northern Nigeria is being given enough of a focus, um, any illusion of improvement there. Chris asked about whether drones could be methods of, dis of um, 
relief rather than destruction, and what about the accountability of decisions? And then Suzanne about whether there's debate at the UN and normalisation of the use of drones in video culture, etc. So if we could have the microphone here, thanks very much. Uh, who'd like to start? I'm going to reverse the order and give Caroline first. <laughs> okay, I'll make a few brief comments. Um, first of all, on um, on corruption, uh, that would definitely be part of a comprehensive approach to security. Um, you know, there are several uh, different uh, ways of fostering stability in places, but one obviously would be addressing. Um, corruption and um, you know ensuring that there's good governance so I completely agree you need to have um, transparency around these issues um, then um, I think the um, I suppose that also covers economic factors uh, you know good governance has to be a part of um, a part of uh, any approach to security um, then on um, Drones can they be used for um, for uh, maybe humanitarian relief? I don't see why not. Uh, it just re really needs a change in um, in our policies and how we kind of view again security and defence. Uh, and then just briefly on, on uh, UN issues, I, as far as I'm aware, their remote control is really seen as part of the existing um, the existing. Form of warfare. Um, there are debates on autonomous weapons going on at the moment, and you know potentially you know ban. But um, uh, I, I think that really you know people are very um, are quite kind of reluctant to discuss these as something separate from their usual methods. Thanks. Yes. Um, yeah. In terms of technology. Islamist, terrorists, jihadists, so on, yes, we can um, more rigor in our language on that. And I think a lot of the, uh, the reason for the self-fulfilling prophecy on this is the confusion of those terms um, and the ignorance of the fact that an individual can play multiple roles or multiple identities uh, over time according to circumstances who's, who's playing the white role. Relative marginalisation and, and, and so on. That's certainly the case in, in this zone. Um, can we boycott things to help? I'm not sure we can in this case. I mean, the, the big commodity that I think uh, is most relevant in, in this theatre of the war on terror is the Nigerian uranium, on which a lot of the U European energy sector depends. Um, Less reliance on nuclear power in France, in particular in Europe in general, would certainly go some way in that. Um, but that is certainly a very long-term uh, response. Um, that's all I'm saying. Thanks, Andrew. Come to call you. Before I go into the Nigerian question, uh, on the use of the word terrorist, is miss, I couldn't agree more, and it's it's what I spend most of my time thinking about in fact because um, you know my, a lot of my job is to deconstruct um, what is Boko Haram um, and uh, you can go into all sorts of levels you know on the level of Boko Haram's professed ideology yes it is an Islamist movement but on the level of you know who, who are the most of its who's the most people who join and why do they join and, and if you go right down into the detail you can do it on a very individual level what, why does somebody join a terrorist group why, why does somebody in the UK join a terrorist group you know, if you talk to, to an organization like the Quilliam Foundation, 
they will tell you all sorts of reasons why people do it. Um, one anecdote I heard recently was a, a young chap who um, was being forced into a forced marriage by his mother, and he had a girlfriend at the time, and he was, had this kind of emotional crisis in his life, girlfriend versus family, you know, tradition versus modernity. What did he do? He went to Syria, and he joined ISIS. Bizarre, bizarre thing to do, if you think about it, given what he was going through. But he did it, and it's, it's, it's not that he was an Islamist, and it's not that he was a terrorist, it's just that something happened in his life. And that is, by and large, the reason why most people join these groups. So it's, it's really foolish, even though it kind of helps, helps the conversation along, to keep them just calling them all terrorists and Islamists. So thank you for the correction there. Um, on Nigeria, why isn't there much attention on it? Um, I think traditionally over the last 10, 20 years, Western foreign policy has been focused on the Middle East. We view our the main threats to the West as coming from the Middle East. And so Africa um, just really isn't um, in the public gaze for that reason, I think. Um, and I, you know, I think you could probably take a more cynical view than that and, and, and think that it might be something to do with, with racism. Um, I hope that that's not the case, but it might be. Um, and how's the new government in Nigeria helped? Well, they stopped using foreign mercenaries, uh, which is probably going to help things. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, look, an insurgency takes 10, 20, 30 years to defeat, so you're not going to see results in, in six months. Um, but Buhari is a very interesting character who is, it seems, not only from the north and therefore um, has the potential to quell some of the concerns that northerners have in Nigeria that are behind the insurgency, but also simultaneously seems to be above the north-south divide. So he's not, it seems he's not providing too much patronage to, to northerners at the defense of southerners. But it's very, very early days, so I don't, I wouldn't want to judge you quickly. Thank you, Paul. I think just a couple of points. Firstly, the use of the term terror and terrorism. I don't think I used it once in my talk except using the term war on terror, because it does come in for such misuse. If you take a standard sort of short definition, uh, the use of terror is designed to cause or it, to actually damage or cause fear uh, among a larger target group than the group actually aimed for. In other words, a small thing designed to have a much bigger impact. If you look at that then realistically over the last hundred years, the great majority of people killed and injured by terror attacks have been done by states against their own people. State terrorism, not even state-sponsored terrorism. And you can look at Russia, China, um, Germany, uh, Belgium, particularly Britain and France in the late colonial era. When you uncover what was really going on as they tried to maintain control, there was widespread use of terror. So I'm very cautious about using that word. The wider issue is that so much of it is about perception. Um, ISIS sells this line that it is the true guardian of Islam under attack by the Crusader Zionist West. That's the line it takes. It has a, a resonance among a very small minority of Muslims, most actually absolutely abhor it. But across the Muslim, what I might call the Western world, there is a perception among the Western world that Islam is a threat. There is a perception among the Muslim world that the West is actually encroaching and is attacking Islam. Uh, you have two radically different mirror images, and they're at the root of many of the problems. Thank you so much. Um, we can finish now. Thank you very much to the panel and also to all of you for your questions. Have a great lunch. Thank you very much.
councillors are lunch in case anybody needs any going up. They are in the ground paper bags all around the corridors or around the library, which is where you're the shoes the lecture. Um, if you have special dietary requirements, they are in the west corridor, which is dug up field on the side of the building. You can ask anybody in the teacher's about it. Plus, there's two talks over lunchtime. You can come into your program about the details about that. Don't worry about it taking up too much of your lunchtime. You've got half an hour on the side for your next talk. Thank you very much, guys.
you know, not much done in the past, so done it doesn't, you know, the uh, and they realize it's not really doing much. And that's now just special forces. Well, now they've got the mandate. Big forces, Yeah. 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 Yeah.
the audience. Right. Right. But you can't even hear from me. And I'm like, you can't hear
Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
But when I was in here earlier, they were using a, a, a radio mic, uh, which was quite crap. That mic's quite good. Okay. If you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, but it's only when people come in the room that start to start to do it. Right. Okay. I was going to say it's not. It doesn't really feel like you need a mic, but maybe you do when it's full of people. Yes, sort of people. Flesh is absorbing. Sound yes. Now, um, I suppose I should just uh, well, I do need to hijack this. Because I could introduce you from the top of my head, but I need to do a little bit of research on this. So I can introduce him without embarrassing myself. <laughs> this is one of those interesting arrangements, and I've had to deal with this at ABBA, where you can only see what's going on on the computer by looking at the screen rather than the computer. Ah, not to worry. As long as you can see one, well, actually, as long as you can see the screen. I've already given my PowerPoint to the organisers. They basically, I could, before they even gave me a wrist tag, they took a copy of my PowerPoint. Really? <laughs> they, they, so they you've got a different colour wrist tag to me. Uh, I'm, I'm for the Friday only people, ah, whereas you are I more enlightened see. and active and just generally more holy. Since Friday, yeah. Saturday time. I didn't know if it was because I was only a chair and you were a genuine speaker. Um, well, we can, that, that might also be the case. Yeah. Shall we go with that as well? <laughs> um, so you're going straight after this to get back to Abba? No, no, I've, my train's up to a quarter to five, so I might sort of somehow kill some time. I can always go to the panel that you're attending with Maria and then slip out rudely. You spout loudly and slam the door. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Not listen to music. I uh, know. Oh, usual suspects are doing the usual things, none of which would surprise you, a veteran of that yes. institution. Um, we've lost five people to Cardiff. Yeah, you I might have heard them. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I was uh, not particularly, not urgently wanting to go or even apply myself and I think the, the whole Cardiff business um, caused several people, in fact probably everyone, to just have quite a little bit of a ponder about the pros and cons. Yeah. And uh, Abba still still came out ahead on the pros. Right. And um, Bree's not, I don't think, ready to move yet. Okay. Henry's in a nice little groove. Yes. Um, so she's still working at the music centre. So she's moved up to four, four most of the days, so right. 20 hours worth. Yep. And we've got Henry in a mixture of nursery and Kilcomythrum. Yep. And yes, like the Kilcomythrum in the same street as us in both of yeah. So, yeah. so we're, we're kind of in quite a nice little group. Yeah. Yes. When I was sort of ruminating, as we all did individually and collectively yeah. on the corridors and in hushed tones, when the head of town wasn't 
um, you know, it's kind of emerged that well, actually, you know, for, for a lot of people on an individual basis, they're doing perfectly well. Thank you very much. And some people, I think, um, sort of hyped, hyped the kind of institutional, structural problems, but they didn't really affect them. Yeah. It's more of an objecting on principle kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. I'm convinced that Hugh Bennett just bailed almost out of spite. Um, which is a shame because he he was and is doing well and yeah. would have continued to do well. Yeah. And is merely moving sideways into a natural I'm gonna have to ask do thing now. Yeah. If, uh, <laughs> but they both got jobs, didn't they? Yeah. So yeah. Well, But he was a spousal hire. <laughs> That's what I tell you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, it's a it's a shame. I don't think either of them truly wants to live. But they kind of talked themselves into talked themselves into it, and almost as a point of principle. It was just odd. I mean, you got this leader here. It was about a hundred grand, maybe less. Um, and he didn't like the fact that the university was not going to use the money to hire in teaching at this point, which was a problem of principle but also yeah. practice, but yeah. it didn't affect him. Yeah, so. And are those five going to be replaced? Nope. Well, that's the fully. danger, isn't it? Not fully. We're going to have two or three more teaching functions yeah. and administrator. It is. It is. Yeah. You're interested in sort of poisons and germs. <laughs> and country like right place. Interesting. <laughs> it's another way of putting it. Yeah, that's the way the worst part of these people because we both not choose the worst for the worst. I mean, all this, you know, the environment just sees this as we've saved 200 grand. Unfortunately, the vulnerability of intelligence studies is now seriously compromised if not just shot to bits. Mm. And I suggest that we suspend that program to the second So, who's teaching Jerry? Well, Jerry seems to be on a fast track to teaching everything. I know, that's why I know. He does seem to be teaching. Of course, fortunately for Jerry, he's not afraid to tell people what he thinks about that. <laughs> You having flashbacks? <laughs> but not flashbacks. <laughs> more recent than that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But uh, no. so I'm I'm quite campaigning to get rid of frequency system. You're too popular. I've I've had reasonable conversations with about thirty. Right. Set out an alternative research presentation approach. And when you do that, you don't just remember it as a lost component. Yeah. Instead of a perfect 